0: yeah guys you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me S-I-M-U-L-T-V. simultv.com exactly are you guys psychic too of course we all know about simultv.com simultv.com
2: welcome to mission evolution radio show with guilda wiaka Bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecka.
4: Hello, dear friends, and welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show where we share innovative thoughts and explore deepening truth in support of the path to unity and enlightenment. I'm your host, Wilde This hour, we'll be looking at the evolutionary power of authenticity and self-love. Authenticity is the key to one's life purpose, and self-love is the key to authenticity. Sounds simple enough. But we've gotten so far from ourselves as individuals and as a species, we don't know who we really are, much less how to love ourselves. Somewhere, buried under self judgment, shame, guilt, and lack of confidence, is a shining star within each of us, the star we came to be. How can we unearth this treasure and evolve into our potential? How can we take up our place in the circle of life and live our purpose? With us this hour to explore self-love is doctor Denora Neves, AKA doctor D. Denora is a behavioral scientist personal development coach, and consultant for Oprah Winfrey's network's IANLA Fix My Life. She works with clients across the country, providing tools to become healthier, happier, and more productive by shifting the thoughts and behaviors that block them from leading fulfilling, balanced lives. She's the author of Love You, 12 Ways to Be Who You Love and Love Who You Are, Love You, the Latina Edition, and Love You, the Workbook. Her website Nora, thanks so much for joining us on Mission Evolution.
1: Thank you for having me, Gwilda.
4: Your PhD is in behavioral science, is that correct?
1: My doctorate is in sociology, actually, from Fordham University. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what, what, what is behavioral science? It's basically the discipline that looks at how people and why people interact the way that they do and how they move through the world, what their cultures are, what their customs are, what they think, what is normal for them, what are the things that we've sort of been conditioned to believe, to want, to know, to experience, um, and and try to make sense of all of that. How old of a science is it? Well, it goes back as, as far as any other discipline, but I think that it really became popular um, in, different schools, sort of in the 1950s and 60s, we started to see some real amazing research coming out of the Chicago School um, that really got us looking at sociology in a different way, much less as uh, just an academic science and much more of a, an applicable knowledge stream, something that's what? concrete and can help us understand people better. As we get more and more populated, it becomes more and more necessary really to understand doesn't it yeah, it really does I mean here's the thing there's There's such an important um aspect to sociology because we are social individuals, so much of who we are, what we think what we believe, what we do, what we say is informed by the interactions that we've had with other people, whether they are, um, you know, sort of what micro sociologists study as, you know, the family unit and the way that your interactions with your parents have impacted you, or when we look at macro sociology and look at what are the messages that are in the infrastructure of our societies and our cultures. Um, so, so it really just spans all the way across to help us understand and get, and get a better sense of how what we think, what we feel, and what we do is impacted and conditioned by how we were raised and socialized. Um, there's increasing evidence that
4: um, our ancestral um, interactions are, are then passed down through our
1: DNA. Have you looked into that at all? You know, I'm not an expert in that area, but I do find it fascinating. I spent a lot of time um, working with Iyanla about this because she talks a lot about the memory that sits in our cells, and I think it's a really important discipline because there is so much to our history, and I think what people tend to do is detach themselves from it. So they look at their past, their ancestors, their family histories, their communities as a separate and apart from them and I think that this idea that we are separate and apart from from what we had and and who we were and also from one another is a big problem I hate to say problem because it sounds so uh oversimplified but frankly it's the best word <laughs> it's it's a big problem right that we see ourselves as separate and apart from from where we've been from where we are from one another and from where we're going
4: how did you first become interested in self-love
1: well, I actually spent um, some time working as a mediator and then a counselor in uh, a middle school. And I, I was really working with a lot of youth who had self-esteem issues and had issues with um, personal interpersonal interactions and just their ability to communicate and their ability to be assertive um, and all of those things and, and more of the work really led me into looking at their healthy behavioral patterns and their unhealthy behavioral patterns. And all of it seemed to stem back to whether or not they felt they had a place here, whether or not they felt that they were valuable, whether or not they felt that they deserved their own energy, time, love, attention. Um, it's very difficult to work with someone someone if they don't feel that because then none of the work that you're doing seems like a good investment and so it became very clear to me early on in my coaching practice that really if people are going to better themselves they need to think of themselves as as worth the investment and self-love is the key to that this
4: might seem simplistic but would you define self-love for us
1: Oh, that's not simplistic at all. I think that's very multidimensional, actually. And I think different experts have different ideas about what it means. To me, loving yourself is in theory and in action, because those are two different types of definitions, right? So in theory, loving yourself is really about seeing yourself as worth all of your time, energy, and attention. And then in action, it's about putting your wellness first and making it a priority, unapologetically guilt-free with an understanding that there's no way to really be of service or a resource to anyone or anything else. If you don't first have your house in order and really give yourself all of the things that you want to be able to emanate out into the world.
4: You know, my Lakota teacher, um, had taught this concept about balancing your shields and it was the left and the right side of the heart. And that was the balance between unconditional love of other and unconditional love of self. Where does that fit in there?
1: I think that that's um, a brilliant teaching. I look at it less as a left and a right sort of thing, you know, less as a dichotomy and more as an organic constant move back and forth. Right. Um, Because really as you love other people, and learn to see them as not separate and apart, but actually a piece of who you are, or you a piece of who they are, or both of you a piece of some larger purpose. As you can see that, you can have a better understanding of all of the places in you that you may want to give yourself more attention. And so really looking at one another as mirrors can be helpful in learning to love yourself, and in learning to love yourself, you can learn to love other people better what are the largest
4: misconceptions about love?
1: That self-love is selfish. I think that's Mm -hmm. the biggest misconception, that if you are putting yourself first, that somehow that means that you are um, a narcissist or that you are somehow not interested in being helpful to other people or that you are not of value to other people because you're only looking at yourself. I think that's the biggest misconception.
4: So what is the difference between someone that loves themselves and a narcissist?
1: Well, I think a narcissist is a very specific clinical term that has a lot of DSM criteria, right? But, but in terms of people who are just selfish, I think that selfishness is bred of fear, that selfishness is bred of insecurity. Selfishness is really bred of a sense of um, being self-centered, and, and it being exclusively about you because you're so afraid of letting go. And those insecurities are, are vast. It can be that you're afraid of letting go because you don't think you'll get what you need. You can be afraid of letting go because um, you've had experiences that, that have taught you that other people think you're unimportant. So there are a vast number of reasons why people can operate from that place. But it's a very different space. When I encourage people to put themselves first, it's not because they are not going to be useful or helpful to other people. It's because what often happens is that in trying to be helpful and useful to other people, people burn themselves out. And then there's this martyrdom that takes place because they feel like they've, given so much and it's not being appreciated, or there's this burnout that takes place because they've given so much, they don't have anything left for themselves. Um, And in that way, you can't inspire your community. You can't model for your community. You can't teach your community. You can't be a source of strength for your community if you don't have it to give. So I really talk to people about self-love as a more sustainable way of practicing relationships. Because when you're in relationship with other people, you really have to work on how do I sustain this energy throughout so that I can be a dependable resource for the, 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 the longevity of this relationship. So it sounds like selfish people are actually ones that don't love themselves. Yeah, I think selfish people are often people who don't love themselves and they operate from that sense of of insecurity. It's interesting. I was watching a documentary yesterday. Quincy Jones says that um, that the ego is just an overdressed insecurity. And I love that. I think that's so that's so pointed because really, that's what it is. When you see people who are incredibly selfish, it's often because they're operating from the fear that if they don't get themselves what they think they need, that they'll never get it. But the reality Mm. is that...
4: We're going to have to pick up on this on the other side of a a commercial break. Denora and I will be back after this commercial break. You're listening to Mission Evolution Radio Show, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.exedbn.net.
2: Until next, we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, X-Zone Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light.
4: Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution Radio dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. Remember, past episodes are available on our website, missionevolution.org. I'm your host, Gwild and our special guest this hour is Denora Neves. Her website, denoraneves.com. Denora, is love something that we get from another?
1: Love is certainly something we can get from another, um- I know that I've heard different people have different perspectives on this that I found interesting. But my perspective on it is that other people can love you. They certainly can. Um, But you won't be able to receive it. You won't be able to use it. You won't be able to incorporate it if you don't have some love for self that it triggers. And I think what often happens is that if people love you and you don't love yourself, you don't know what to do with or where to put their love because you don't have a place inside of you where it resonates. So it's a frequency mismatch, right? It is. It's absolutely a frequency mismatch. There's, there's no alignment. There's no way to align with something that you have no concept of internally.
4: So it's like a piano with a broken key. You can play <laughs> the sonata, but you're not going to hit that note.
1: <laughs> That's it. That's it. You, yeah. you absolutely can, can't hit the note. Now, here's what you can do, though. You can come close. And oftentimes what I see in romantic relationships is people will find someone who loves them and then they'll try to learn how to love themselves by mimicking the way the other person loves them. Right. Um, It's a little bit of what you're talking about. It's the closest they can come to hitting the note. Uh, but, But ultimately it falls short and it falls flat because there's nothing that keeps it, again, that word, sustainable. Um, You're just mimicking something that another person is authentically experiencing. It doesn't create an authentic experience for you. Mm -hmm. Do we generate love or simply tap into a universal frequency? I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, I have heard constant enlightened people say that we're just tapping into a universal frequency, and I think that that's true. But I've also seen moments where I I think to myself, wow, that just added to our, our love currency. You know, mm. I see I see things happen between people or even, you know, people and animals or all kinds of things. And I, I'll look at it and I'll say to myself, we're a little richer today than we were yesterday because of that. Why do you see self-love as so important to our evolution as individuals? Because I think that what people will uh, focus on in terms of our evolution as individuals is the socially determined survival aspects of life right what what are you doing financially you know how are you physically um you know how are you going to survive the climate uh that's how i think that people think about it but i don't think that you can invest yourself in yourself in your physical wellness in your financial wellness in your social wellness in any aspect or dimension of your wellness if you don't look at yourself as a priority and so i think that in order for us to really be able to move forward and evolve and consider the the different ways of being, thinking, and feeling that will help us to develop a higher consciousness, we really have to be able to pour into ourselves the resources that will elevate our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior.
4: Well, it's darn hard to evolve when we're we're stressed day to day on survival. And -hmm. there's been lots
1: of studies proving that children don't survive without love. That's actually uh, very true, and that they don't need much other than love to survive. And that's the truth, right? Because again, when you are loved, it, and and you can love yourself. And often for children, there hasn't been some uh, traumatizing event that has taught them that they're not lovable. Let's hope. Um, and so when when you have some sense that you are lovable and people confirm that and affirm that for you, then it becomes easier for you to see yourself as worth investing in. And you're not as stressed about the day-to-day because they don't seem as threatening to you as they may have without it. What stands between most people and self-love?
4: What, what What's the wrench of the works there?
1: <laughs> mm, I want to say fear. I think that's my standard sort of uh, answer from for most things. I think that people are afraid. I really do. I think that people are afraid that if they put themselves first, they'll lose the relationships that they have. Um, and I think that people are very afraid of losing the relationships that they have because it's what they know. And so oftentimes I'll work with, you know, the mother who is trying to be superwoman and manage the job and manage the husband and manage the children with, you know, no support and no help and no asking for what she needs. And I talk to her about, well, what's going on here? And, and she'll say to me, I just don't, you know, what will happen if I say to them, this is what I need. And so it's the fear that she won't get it. It's the fear that if she doesn't get it, then she has to hold people in her life accountable for not being able to give her what she needs. And what does she do with that? It's the fear that if that happens, she'll lose the people that are in her life and we don't know if they'll be replaced. It's the fear that she'll end up alone. That's often, you know, what occurs. I talk to children who are on breakdown with their parents, you know, and say, why aren't you honest with your, your father about how it makes you feel that he doesn't come around? And the child will say to me, because, you know, I don't I don't want to tell him, and what if he doesn't come back, right? So there's there's a a perpetual and insidious fear, um, often of being alone, which I talk about in my book, that really keeps people in relationships where they don't feel they can be honest, where they can't ask for what they need, where they can't put their needs first because they've made these sort of silent agreements with one another that they won't ask for what they need and they won't hold each other accountable for it.
4: But it's not necessarily an unfounded fear, is it? I mean, as, as we start to transition into loving ourselves enough to request what we need from others, sometimes others aren't going to
1: play the game. That's exactly right. And you know, the fear of being alone is more a fear of loneliness than anything else. And I talk in my book about the difference between loneliness and solitude, right? And, and you can be alone and not be lonely. But what you really have to be able to do is get in touch with yourself. And you know, in my, from my perspective, a higher power, and really be able to look at it from the sense of, what do I bring to the table that I can enjoy? with myself, in myself, of myself, in the absence of other people, and really find a place of joy. And from that place, then you attract other people. You can't not attract other people, because when you love yourself that much, people are enthusiastic about loving you too. But I think you do have to have the courage to come over that hump. Where your relationships shift and there is a period where you're figuring it out because the old relationships no longer fit and you haven't quite attracted the new relationships and can you get through that with just you
4: that's a terrifying time isn't it you know there's some studies out there um, you know the heart math group and everybody else mm-hmm. that, are, that are showing that if we can be in our heart which is the place of love There's an interconnectedness with all things that's available there that isn't available anywhere else. It's basically the uh, energetic or toroidal field that the heart generates then interfacing with that of other. Um, How does that
1: play in here? Well, I mean, I think that that's valid. And I I know a lot of people that use the heart um, mind and the heart math. But what I don't think we want to overlook is the place that thoughts play, right? You know, again, I'm a sociologist by training. And so I think a lot of what happens is that people think that their feelings come, um, And then they're, you know, they're thinking about their feelings. But in actuality, a lot of people's feelings are raised by the thoughts that they have around a particular subject. And those thoughts are often a result of what we've been trained to think or conditioned to believe, right, that there are things that would make us sad and things that would make us mad and things that would make us feel bad. And because we find ourselves in those spaces, and we think that's not where we should be, then we start to to feel these emotions. And so I think, there's a definitely a place for us to be able to sit in our heart and be happy. But I also think there's a place for us to just start to challenge what we believe and what we think. And there can be so much joy that can come just from rethinking what we think. You know, I find so many people are unhappy. And one of the biggest issues, even with loneliness, is that people find themselves alone and start to be unhappy about where they believed their life would be at this point. And where they see their life as being, and how those two things are different, and they really sit in that, and it can cause so much turmoil for people. Often, um, and that's a big piece of where I am with my coaching practice. Is people will come to me, and that's a that's a, almost always the lead in that they're not where they thought they would be, either emotionally or financially or whatever. And um, so much of that is just about dismantling where they thought they would be, you know, and really. So, so look- we
4: have these. We have these thoughts that put us into a construct from our past or one that we designed for our future that then pollute our feelings in the present. So we're not really feeling what we're feeling now.
1: That's Is correct. That- okay. That's absolutely correct. You know, I was just working with a client who has an, an illness and, and I said to him, well, have you dealt with the illness and he's like yeah you know I'm just so afraid of dying and I'm so and I'm like well that's very interesting because what you're talking to me about is your reaction to the diagnosis because what the diagnosis of the illness triggered for you is that you may die or that you won't be able to do some of these things that you anticipated you would do but none of that is a result of the actual illness." are you in pain? Are you sick? What's going on for you? And he was like, no, not not yet. So none of the symptoms of the illness had actually manifested. But the diagnosis of the illness triggered something cognitively that was so powerful that he was making himself sick over this reaction to the diagnosis. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not a legitimate reaction to the illness. But what I wanted him to understand and what we're working for him to see is how his thoughts about what's happening contribute to the upset much more than any reaction he's actually having to the illness itself
4: can the thoughts also uh, kind of um, send you down that path if you so strongly
1: believe you know you get your emotions all riled up and pretty soon you manifest that outcome Yeah, I mean, it's not, yes, you can talk about it from the perspective of metaphysical manifestation, which I believe in wholeheartedly, but even from a concrete perspective of as you increase your stress levels, you know, and your cortisol, and your high blood pressure, and what having those elevated vitals does for your state well, of
4: well being. We'll have to talk about self-fulfilling prophecies on the other side <laughs> because it is time for another short pause. Denora and I will return to our discussion on the other side of this break, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution Radio Show on the Exon Broadcast Network, www.xedvn.net.
0: Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com
2: Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God. And finally, after the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com That's www.futureofgodamen.com
4: Welcome back. This is the Mission Evolution radio show, www.missionevolution.org, bringing the latest tools and information to support the path to enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka, and our guest this hour is Denora Neves. Her website, denoraneves.com. Denora, we were talking about how we can take our thoughts that generate feelings and then create a future uh, that isn't necessarily what we want. How can we turn that around to manifest what we want through managing our feelings and thoughts?
1: I think that the real tool is to learn how to catch your thoughts in the moment as they're happening. And, you know, I know people always want some sort of quick way to do that. But it's really just a practice and sometimes a lifelong practice to really, as you're thinking, be conscious of what it is that you're really thinking. What is stemming from that thought? What is precipitating that thought? Where did you get it from? Um, You know, I often find myself thinking things and then I can't figure out how I got to thinking it. Uh, So really just being conscious of what thoughts are in your mind and how they're feeding the rest of your body and how they're feeding your energy and how they're feeding your relationships. And then moment by moment, catching yourself and being like, oh, wait a minute, let me think about something else or let me think about that differently. Um, I think that's the important piece of it. So it's, it's like a, a neurological reprogramming by being mindful. That's exactly it. It's about, it's about reprogramming. It's about thought and cognitive restructuring. And it is about neurological pro- reprogramming by being mindful. Really, really being aware of those thoughts and why they're there. The genesis of the thought is really important. I tell people that all the time. You know, are you being fueled by your fear or are you being fueled by your faith? And the fear is valid and it's legitimate. And, you know, I know my fear is here to keep me safe. And as a result, it will sometimes overassess a threat because it can take no chances. And so sometimes I just have to say to my fear, OK, don't worry. We got this. I'm good. I'm going to be all right. You know, and just sort of take that edge off and turn my thought in a different direction.
4: Aren't there conditioned threats? In other words, we're taking the events of the past, superimposing them on the present and making a rerun out of the future.
1: Absolutely, all the time, because we're very comfortable in replicating what we know, even if we don't Get from it what we believe we want, or even if we don't get from it what we say we want. What we get from it is a sense of security because there's nothing uncertain about repeating something you've already gotten through, and there's a sense of safety because if you got through it once, you know you can get through it again. And so there is a piece of us that will often just take what we've been through and recreate it. That's why it's so important that we stay mindful, and so important that we stay alert, and so important that as we're thinking, we're aware of the consciousness that surrounds Rounds our thinking so that we can make shifts and make changes in real time in our lives without just repeating the patterns that we've had coming down the line. So you're
4: talking about having a witness on deck at all times.
1: I'm talking about not just having a witness on deck, but I'm also talking about having an active, supportive witness, right? Not a person who's just a bystander in your mind, but also a piece of you that is willing to challenge you so that you can have a real dialogue internally where you say to yourself, "Uh, that might be legitimate, but it's not helpful, right? Your thoughts are valid, but they're not all going to move you forward in the direction that you want. And so you validate the thought. You understand where it came from and what it's looking to achieve. And then you think to yourself, what's gonna be a more helpful thought to think about this? Or if I can't move away from that energy on this particular theme, right, hashtag politics, then what else can I think about? Or where can I direct my energy, my attention that might help me to soothe myself so that I can attract something better into my life in this moment? Let's
4: talk about authenticity a little bit. What stands between us and our authenticity?
1: Hmm, I hate to make self-love the answer to everything. (laughs) But self-love is kind of the answer to everything. (laughs) So I really think that that's the piece that keeps us from being authentic. Because if we love ourselves, then we know ourselves. And if we know ourselves and we love ourselves, we don't have anything to fear. And I think what keeps us from being authentic is fear. And it's a fear of rejection. It's a fear of being invalidated. It's a fear of ultimately being alone, right? Either emotionally or physically. And I think that what people will do is then they manipulate their thoughts, their feelings, their behaviors, and then they start to manipulate other people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors using what they've manipulated of their own. Um, and, And oftentimes we're not even conscious that we're doing it. And I think we all do it. You know, I will straighten my hair to go to some meetings and leave it curly to go to others because I have a sense of who's going to react in which way. Right. Um, Or, you know, what color shirts do you wear to be in some atmospheres versus, you know, oftentimes we allow the social environment and what we know about other people's responses to inform how we're going to move forward through our day to day. And some of that is okay, because we are social actors living in a social world, and we have social goals that we need to accomplish. But it starts to become problematic when it's not just a useful tool that you kind of play with, but you start to believe those things as real for you, rather than tapping into what's really real for you.
4: So it's when we start to identify with the tools versus ourselves and then use the tools around it.
1: That's exactly right. You know, I try to tell my niece all the time, she's not prettier if her hair is straight or if her hair is curly, right? But there are some times you don't want people to just come up and touch your your curls. (laughs) It makes you you sensitive and then you can't respond in the same way. You know, there are some activities for which you're going to have to tie your hair up, right? Um, But that's not about who you are as a person it doesn't define your value. It's not a piece of your identity. It's really just a a decoration, right? And you can decorate the party however you wanna decorate the party for the purpose of the party. But what you have to be clear about is that when the party's over, you're still happy with celebrating who you are. How early in life do we tend to start losing authenticity? I mean, you see a little
4: baby come in and they're like, of course you're gonna love me. I'm just too darling, you know? And of course you do. But then somewhere along the line, that starts to go away. What's going on there?
1: I would say that most of us have been taught out of our authenticity by very well-meaning adults in our lives who wanted to prepare us for the social world as they saw it. And you know, and you see it, I know when I do it, because you you start to give answers as opposed to ask questions, right? So even with my niece, I catch myself doing it all the time. I'll say to her, well, no, this is how it has to be. And it dawns on me after I've gotten through the sentence that I never asked her how she wanted it to be. Because Mm -hmm. I think that I'm imparting some divine wisdom that I've earned over my, you know, 30 years plus uh, over her right and and that I have some duty to her to prepare her so that she's adequately trained for how to deal with the world and what I do sometimes is I'll mute her and she'll tell me because you know I taught her early to tell me, (laughs) so she'll say to me, uh, you know, that's not what I want. Um, But I think that's how it happens. I think that's often how it happens. And we teach one another to prioritize the sort of socially valued way of moving forward as opposed to teaching us or teaching each other how to ask ourselves internally, what, what are we really craving for as a spirit or a soul in this moment? So basically, we're being socialized by other people's fears. Yeah, we're being socialized by other people's fears, but wait for it, well-meaning, well-intentioned, altruistic fears, (laughs) which are harder to challenge, you know, that's a a really important distinction, because fears that are brought to us by really important people in our lives who love us very dearly and who mean well and are trying to prepare us, those are going to be harder fears to challenge. Those are going to be harder thoughts to reprogram because they came to us from people we trusted so much that we are not ready often to challenge the thought and the training because then we have to challenge the relationship. and that's, As, that's Isn't that the truth? We can yeah. oftentimes
4: feel like we're going to hurt the person by yeah. not responding to their fear even though it's not appropriate for us to do so.
1: Uh, Yeah, like my mother still calls me, Uh, by the way, I'm going to be 40 years old and she will still call me and tell me to lock every door. I don't know what she thinks is going to (laughs) happen. I don't even want to ask. Right. But one of the things that I find myself doing is if I don't speak to my mother right before I go to sleep, I still imagine her telling me to lock all the doors and I go to the door to start locking. And my fiance will say to me, "Um, can we get some air, though? Like, (laughs) do we have to die in here without oxygen? (laughs) But it's so automatic. And it's so um, so sewn into the fabric of how I think about the world, because it was introduced to me not only very early on, but by someone who I know had every good intention for me and by someone who I still to this day very much trust, love and respect. And so it's hard to take how you feel about a person and separate it from how you may feel about the helpfulness, usefulness or value of what they've said to you.
4: It's it's like a bowl spaghetti, isn't it? Trying to unbury who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, it really is. It really is.
4: So we have to unbury our authenticity to be able to love ourselves, right?
1: Well, a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of a of a process as we unbury some of our authenticity, we learn how to love ourselves more. But as we start to love ourselves more, it becomes easier to unbury some of our authenticity. Because as we love ourselves more, we fear the rejection less. And as we fear the rejection less, we give ourselves more space to take chances on what we think, what we see, what we feel, what we heard, what we, you know, believe, what we want, what we need, and really putting that out into the universe in a way that's, that's real, that's authentic, that's genuine. We're, we're more willing to take those chances when we're not afraid of being rejected. So I think they feed and inform one another
4: amazing amazing kind of like working your way through an onion spiral spiraling down with with both attitudes right
1: that's exactly yeah. right yeah okay well we, we need to take another break
4: denora okay. and i will be back shortly so don't you dare go away you're listening to the mission evolution radio show on the Zone broadcast network www.xzbn.net Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution Radio Show, www.missionevolution.org, bringing the latest developments in an evolving world. I'm your host, Guadalupe I always love suggestions from my listeners. Email me at info at missionevolution.org to propose a topic or a guess that's on your mind. I'm sure we'll all enjoy them. Our guest this hour is Dr. Denora Nieves. Her website, denoranieves.com. Denora... Let's talk a bit about loneliness. We, you brought it up a little bit earlier, and I think it's huge. I mean, there's more of us on the planet right now than ever before in recorded history, and yet loneliness seems to be really, really common. Why is that?
1: Well, I think there are, as I answer everything, I think there are multiple reasons. Um, I think one of the reasons is because people don't know how to connect to one another. It's not something that we're taught. It's something that we almost take for granted as a skill because often uh, the places where we live are so populated and we find ourselves almost thrown into social environments and social engagements. Um, but it's not really a skill that people are taught. And so when communication breaks down, when trust breaks down, when uh, mutual respect breaks down, when those kinds of things start to break down, people often will retreat. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today. I think an additional piece that you know I'd be remiss to overlook is technology. People Find ways to connect with one another that may be enough for the communication, but not enough for the connection. And so what I think people find themselves doing is then over texting, over gaming, over emailing, over calling because they're craving something, looking for something that they're not sure why they're not getting. Um, and it's really that, com- that connection, that human connection. Um, and we can get it through other forms of communication, text and, and gaming and all kinds of things. But it's a supplement, not a replacement for human touch, for human interaction, for a how you doing in the morning, for a smile. Uh, for eye contact right and so I think that that contributes to why it is that people's feelings of loneliness are increasing because they're communicating more than they ever have but they may not be connecting more than they ever have what is the difference between communication and connection I think that communication is really an exchange of ideas and I think that connection is an an exchange of, of energy and so you can have an energetic exchange through the exchange of ideas, but they're not necessarily um, equitable, right? They're not necessarily uh, holding one in the other.
4: Is one more mind-centered and one more heart-centered?
1: That is a good question. I I think it is for most people, but I don't think it has to be. And that's why I was sitting contemplating that as you asked it. I think that most people will speak from a cognitive place Uh, but I think if people learn how to align with what's going on inside of them if they're really sitting in the love for who they are and the love for other people if they're not looking at the separation between them but the unity between them and if they can get to a place of alignment with one another then communication can be heart-centered it, did, it isn't often these days, but I think it, it absolutely has the potential to be. It just requires that we align with the process in a different way than we have been.
4: So it looks like we've gone full circle, That unless you can really connect with yourself and love yourself, you don't have the plug-in to connect with and
1: love others. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And how would you? And how would others love you? Because what I often remind people is that people learn how to love you by watching you love yourself. You know, And I, I will often get clients or people who come to me and say, you know, my kids don't listen to me, my husband doesn't pay any attention to me, I don't feel like I'm getting the promotion at work. And my answer is always, what did you teach those people about how important you are? Because they're modeling for you what you have taught them to believe is true about you. And if you said that you weren't important in some way, through your beliefs, through your actions, through your thoughts, through your feelings, then what's going to get married back to you is that you're not important.
4: It's just amazing, isn't it? The resonance with mm-hmm. our own self-image that mm-hmm. we see in the world around us.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: What do you see? Um, let's let's en- envision this into the future a bit. Yes. What, how do you see us evolving if we can move into, as a, as a species, if we can move into self-love?
1: I think that there are a few things that will change in our consciousness. One thing that I think will change in our consciousness is accountability. Because often what I see happening, particularly in today's climate, is a lot of blaming and a lot of shaming. There's a lot of blaming and a lot of shaming. And I think that blaming and shaming is what happens when you look outward as opposed to looking inward. And that doesn't mean that you can't call people out. Um, on on where they are and what they've done but I think that people do have to have a certain level of accountability and be able to say you know this is where I am these are my strengths these are my struggles this is what I'm working on this is where I need your support Um, and when you love yourself and you know yourself you're not afraid of the rejection you're willing to do that you know you're willing to speak from that authentic place Um, and so I think that's something that I can envision shifting is a, a higher level of accountability and I think with that will come also a higher level of respect for people, that you really can start to see other people for their strengths, and really start to see, see them above their struggles.
4: Isn't blaming and shaming what drives us away from our self-love in the first place?
1: It really is, because what we often do is internalize the judgment we've heard or felt from other people, right? And, and that's what you really want to look for, is who is setting the energetic tone? Are you loving yourself in a way that teaches other people how to love you or are you taking your cues about how to love you from what you're seeing and hearing from other people because that's a very different energy for for knowing yourself
4: do you, you know so often the blame and the shame is projected from their own perceived lack versus something about you
1: well sometimes right the blaming and the shaming for sure yes i agree with you sometimes people do give you important, helpful, reasonable feedback about who you are and how you're moving through the world. And that's helpful for you to be able to hear. And again, when you're in a place of loving yourself, you're in a place of humility. And, I, you know, again, another thing I talk about my, in my book, humility is not about being, you know, um, passive, right? Humility is, is about understanding that you have much to learn and much to offer, And that that's a really important piece of how you walk through the world. So you're receptive to other people because you know you have much to learn. But you're also emanating a sense of worthwhileness, right? A sense of worthiness, a sense sense of self-love and confidence because you also know you have much to offer. So what's the
4: relationship between authenticity, self-love, and living our purpose?
1: I think that if you can be... If you learn to love yourself, it becomes easier to be authentic, and if you are authentic in both the way that you present yourself in the world as well as in the way you hear yourself inside of you, if you can allow those things to align, then you move forward through the world with a real sense of purpose because you align with why you're here. You, you hear it. You feel it. You go into a room and you know exactly what you're there to accomplish. You can tell when you're in relationships or when you're in professional environments or when you're out vacationing. It becomes very clear to you how you can be of service, how you can be of value, what you can contribute that will be helpful in the world. And I think that 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 level of clarity can really fuel you into a purpose-driven life. But it starts with you being able to clear out the thoughts that are coming from some outside judgmental conditioning and starting to hear the voice that's inside of you driving you and guiding you toward what you're meant to do so like tuning out the static enough to hear the tone tuning out the static enough to hear the tone yeah or tuning out the static and the tone enough to hear the silence (laughs) i like that a lot do you think we all come with purpose i do I think that we all come with purpose and you know again I've spent a lot of my career working with children too and often they know right off the bat what they are here to do what excites them what what they enjoy where they are valuable how they can move through this in a way that's going to be easy they know you know I knew you knew most of us knew. Um, we may not have been able to pinpoint it as a career, but we certainly had activities that turned us on to the very tippy toe um, or, or tip of our, finger, of our fingers, right? Like we just had an energy about us when we did certain things or contributed to the world in a particular way. And somewhere along the line, we lose that. You know, we we start to learn about how much money you'll need to take care of your family and what your responsibilities are and what it costs to mortgage a house. And it starts to really look different for us. And we're willing to let go of that. Well, we're
4: just about out of time. What is the most important step any of us can take in order to become who we are and love who we become?
1: I think the most important steps that we can take to love who we are and be who we love is really to sit in silence, to sit in the silence, challenge the thoughts, and prove to ourselves that we are enough, in and of ourselves.
4: It's it's an amazing process, isn't it?
1: It really is. It really is. And it's scary, and it's rewarding, and you have to have the courage to get through the former, but the latter is a promise.
4: Mm -hmm. It's really a promise for our future, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know it is hard to believe, but we're already we're already ahead of time. Oh. Denora, De thank you so much for coming on the oh, show. Oh, thank
1: you, Golda. I really appreciated it. I enjoyed our conversation.
4: It's been a lot, a lot of fun, and <laughs> we'll have to do it again sometime.
1: Yes, please. Okay. Our guest this
4: hour has been Denora Nieva. Nievas. I've been mispronouncing her name, and I apologize. Um, She's the author of Love You, 12 Ways to Be Who You Love and Love Who You Are. Her website, denoranaedis.com. Remember to join our email family to stay abreast of all the exciting new things we have coming up at missionevolution.org. This has been Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Join us next time as the mission continues to bring information, resources, and support to an evolving world.